I was asked by um, um, Alexandra, who's doing a good imitation of the mayor this morning, Lord of Bo- <laughs> or Elf. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't for the life of me. She was a very quick little just message on my on my cell phone. Introduce Edward Norman, please. So I quickly went through. Well, why am I been asked to do this? And I thought, well, I. I have coffee with the Normans on a very regular basis, both of them. Uh, and I thought that may be the reason for that. It was a bit vague. And I thought, no, no, I know. Because Alexander Richmond knows that in grade nine, I played the French horn. <laughs> so that clicked. I suddenly realized that's the reason they have me. I know a bit about music. I have a background in the French horn. It was very short, and they asked me, I got a passing grade in grade nine if I promised not to take it anymore. <laughs> That's not the kind of story that Ed Norman's had with music. He has a very distinguished career uh, uh, in the world of music, especially on the organ. He's been a long-time organist at St. John Shaughnessy, and he's uh, in much in demand around around the town and other places, uh, concerts and other uh, uh, music organ events. So... I'm um, a very distinguished gentleman, and I'm pleased to uh, welcome him uh, amongst us this morning, Edward. Thank you, Harvey. Much, much too generous. But uh, one of the things I um, do do is I'm on faculty part-time at Trinity Western in the music department working with a, a delightful and um, very exciting young choral director called Dr. Joel Tranquilla who is introducing a lot of new music uh, to the students. His predecessor, Dr. Wes Jansen, a very dear friend of mine, uh, also did the same thing. It's just that this, this guy is perhaps emphasizing it a little more and challenging them through music which is uh, not always predictable at all. Uh, We had a concert in the end of last semester in which um, some of the magnificent music, including Frank Martin's Mass, which is very, very difficult indeed, double choir and some very original harmonic (coughs) characteristics was played, as well as a number of other things, Canadian composed hot off the press, Joel has a, an ear for music with real integrity and structural integrity. Uh, some people were sitting behind. I don't say this to mock them in the least, but I think it's, um, I think it's revealing. There was a group of people <clears throat> behind me, older, and the gentleman at the end of the uh, first half said, well, I was hoping for a Beatles medley. <laughs> and the other, one of his uh, female companions announced that she didn't like that music it didn't sound right and uh, it was in Latin reminded me of Catholics she said and off they went for their uh, <laughs> off they went for their coffee and ironic really uh, what the gentleman wanted was really what he would probably call an upbeat contemporary kind of service music Um, when in fact they had been given real contemporary Christian music. (laughs) And so I've often been puzzled. One more illustration. Um, When the church shall remain nameless in the office, I heard a secretary saying, yes, that's quite right, yes, that's the morning service, our upbeat service is in the evening. And... (laughs) Which, if you happen to be the music director, is discouraging. Um, (laughs) So the term... Um, com- contemporary is being flung around and is being um, hijacked by a very powerful praise and worship industry 
um, to uh, enhance and get people to assume certain things about a certain kind of music. And I thought, therefore, two things were important, to try and clarify that and to do so by going back through some salient points in music history and see what contemporary meant. We're living at a time when this division in, over music in the church tends to rest on a view, as someone once said to me, I'm tired of singing 500-year-old hymns. Oh dear, you know, um, our history <laughs> and the richness of past eras and the strengths of different periods in both poetry and music uh, just don't count sometimes in this. You can hardly call it a debate. There are these assumptions. So, Let's see what happened um, if we listen to a little bit of uh, William Byrd, who uh, here is, let's see now, around 1588, is setting, giving us some music based on Psalm 33. Who is the man who desires life that values length of days to see good things? Restrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. It is, of course, in Latin. Bird wrote both in Latin and English as the Reformation upheavals swung around him. Many of these composers in and around the Chapel Royal and London itself had to play safe. But this is... Um I wonder why I don't have sound. Ah, Is that too loud? What you notice, of course, is a lot of imitation. A voice takes a motif or a, a melodic segment and it's imitated by other voices in and around and the whole thing brought to a head at certain points in a vertical harmonic ascent. It's very gorgeous music designed very much with the Cathedral Royal Chapel Royal Acoustic in mind. This wouldn't sound quite so well in there. <laughs> and then the same composer is able to set this text, um, which is, I need to remind myself, if women could be fair and never fond, Oh, that their beauty might continue still. I would not marvel, though they made men happy. Same things are going on in a different, lighter style. Imitation, copying, com passing off one to another, not unlike in the jazz ensemble. 
harmonically and stylistically, you can see there's a lot in common. This is music designed not necessarily for people um, who have had detailed professional training, but with an eye, yes, it would have to be for the, for the educated classes at this time, 16th century. Nevertheless, for um, kind of after dinner, leaning on the mantelpiece, madrigal style singing. Um, <laughs> The point I want to make there is notice how close the styles are. And you can kind of <coughs> almost imagine flipping across. Well, tell me, or don't tell me, think what this reminds you of. terrible recording, but what is that? Ah! No, it's not. It's a very... <laughs> it's a salacious text from a secular opera uh, to which Handel later set um, that with... with yes, 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 thank you. Uh, it's set, of course... Just listen to a bit more of this. But isn't that interesting? You could take something out of a totally different context and apply it in a sacred, if you will, set, set, uh, segment, setting. That in itself should raise some questions in our mind. And for artists, particularly in the, this whole issue of Christian music, Christian art versus... This has to be surely one of the most glorious of the Messiah choruses. Some of those earlier Renaissance features of passing off from one voice to another and counterpoint and point-counterpoint apply here, though it's a mixture because it comes to this great chordal assertion. As we listen to this, I know I've played it before, but as we listen to this, uh, just we need to s perhaps pick up on the elements in it, the variety. A bit like looking at a flower, you know, and putting apart and seeing how it's layered or a bird's wing. You've got a dance rhythm in the bass line, setting the character. You've got this dotted rhythm, which always implies uh, excitement of some anticipation. Sometimes it's in the form of a French overture for the arrival of the king. Um, you've got chordal, what we call mono, uh, monody, and you've got counterpoint, polyphony. <laughs> I find that... Uh, uh, 
such a delightful chorus. And of course, right through Handel's Messiah, which is an extraordinarily varied work, stylistically at least. Of course, it's also extraordinary for the setting of the text and the choice of the scriptural text. But musically, it has something of everything in it. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, So, this was... Uh, there's still this uh, a closeness of um, style as we move into the Baroque... Well, we're well into the Baroque era. We've had to skip a lot. Um, and then, if we just... We can't leave that era without looking at the person who brought things to a fine point indeed. Handel did, but uh, for me, it's Johann Sebastian. Christmas Oratorio. We praise you, God, though our voices are weak, we pray that they are acceptable to you. So, dance rhythm again. This is very vertical. start getting contrasting elements. Notice also the different kinds of orchestration or instrumentation. Um, Brass is used sparingly, it had to be because of the difficulty of the instruments, but limitations of the instruments, just like icing on the cake. Um, We have woodwind playing on here, as well as the inevitable strings. And the, and the voice is expected to be as nimble as the instruments. Bart wrote for his choristers as though for instruments. He made no allowances. <laughs> Another thing perhaps to keep in mind is the exuberance and joy in these, these two composers particularly are so good at expressing. That's an important point, I think, especially as we consider the term upbeat. Um, This is a contemporary. Johann David Heineken is a Dresden composer, but writing here in secular style. Again, the dance, dance impacts Baroque music deeply. Dance is going way back into the Renaissance and the early er. Um, there is about Baroque music a predominance of major keys, which was limited to some extent by the temperaments they could work in. Um, but nevertheless, major keys and a lot, the predominance of fast. <laughs> Later on, in the Romantic period, particularly, um, there's a predominance of slow. Uh, if you look at a, how, much, how many, in the good old days of the long playing record, how much bark you could stuff onto one disc, or an early Beethoven symphony. Perhaps you could get two on, number one and number two. But when it comes to the choral symphony, you need two discs just to cover that one work. Things start to expand, and the slow movements particularly start to take on a, a rather 
I mean, I don't mean this meanly, a self-reflective intensity, and they require time to work themselves out. These gentlemen are from the Baroque period were artisans. They uh, worked within the style they'd inherited, which was deeply influenced by the dance suite, not solely, but um, and also opera. Um, in fact, talking of singing, uh, opera-like cantata work, um, you'll recognise this, especially if it plays. Come along, please. This thing Sorry, this thing turns itself off, dear oh dear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, association of ideas, what do you uh, think of when you hear sheep may safely graze? This is being sung in German. Sheep may safely graze. It's um, Cantato 802, I think. Is that right? No, 208. Oh dear, no, forget that. I'm not sure of the BWV number. But what I wanted to ask you is um, would you like that played um, at a solemn occasion? Um, or do you think it's appropriate for um, communion or things like that? Because it's got nothing to do with Christianity at all. <laughs> It's uh, it's a secular cantata and uh, celebrating kind of country life, rural life. Um, in fact, the rest of the cantata, though he reworked it later um, for sacred purposes, um, is not that you know it's not Bach at his best. But that, of course, is a famous piece and rightly. But we assume I did for years that we are the sheep. We all like sheep who've gone astray. And that we can now dwell safely because of the work of Christ and his governance over our life. Um, it doesn't matter that I, perhaps you slipped up on that, <laughs> it seems to me. The world ends and uh, the Christian church is not going to be shaken by that. But is it interesting, again, how we can be sometime we make assumptions which uh, don't really work. There was another, there is another instance of Bach um, uh, crossing, crossing the, uh, the gulf between secular and sacred. And remember that all this music is contemporary. Um, Bach was told, virtually, not quite, you know, cantata please for, for Easter, not to it, wrote 200 of them. Um, for church use, his chorale preludes, the organ music, all fresh off, you can't say the press, very little of Bach's music was, was printed, a little bit, um, but hot off the pen. Um, you were getting contemporary music by Christians. <laughs> 
Bach found this, I've got to sing it, unfortunately, a little theme. Ich Benninger Groot, a Dutch folk tune. And out of it, he made, out of it, he made a few. which he very likely played at the end of a service. He often split, we think, his preludes and fugues, fantasias and fugues, into before and after the worship. So here he is taking, poaching, if you will, from the um, everyday and transforming it to the glory, as all he apparently sought to do in his music, to the glory of God. And again, the fugal skill pedal. So, different voices have the, uh, the the derivative of this folk tune in different tonalities, and they play off against one another. It's interesting to me that in the last century, early in it especially, people like Rafe Vaughan Williams and the conductor Sir Thomas Beecham often said, no, no, this is no good. Too many notes. There's too much going on. Um, I think it was Sir Thomas Beecham who said, too much counterpoint. Protestant counterpoint at that. (laughs) Which I think is a great loss, but it's a very significant viewpoint. Um, there was a suspicion of this music and a neglect of it so that it actually vanished almost from the musical scene until Mendelssohn the 19th century, early 19th century uh, set about rediscovering it um, Or ac- I'm not sure if he accidentally stumbled on it but he certainly uh, presented a famous concert in which he presented a number of Bach's significant works including some organ music and then from there on Bach came back into the public view but even as late as the late Victorian era there were people like the conductor Malcolm Sargent who trained as a uh, a cathedral uh, apprentice organist which is the way it was done in those days and his organ teacher at Peterborough Cathedral would say, Bark, hmm, all right, well, you better learn it. <laughs> There's a suspicion of this man. There was no big tune. And it didn't address, in a way that was by then, in full flower, it didn't address this inward-looking, my feelings, how I feel about things, how this affects me. The self um, was not focused on as... Uh, in this music, the, the self is not focused on in that way. There's reflective music, of course, I haven't played much. But my feeling as a musician is that it lifts us and points us heavenward. And in the case of the secular music, for a non-believer, it, it still pushes outwards. Whereas so much of the romantic heritage, and I'm not knocking it, it's, it's some gorgeous contributions from the Romantic era. Nevertheless, there tends to be a more inward, in, in turned uh, process in the listening and in the way we are addressed. 
And of course, it's very prone to ridiculous um, manipulation. Just continuing, because um, I, I want time for lots of discussion, so I'm trying to be good today and not, not run anywhere near late. So let's see if I can keep to that. Um, at this point, after Bach and Handel's death in 1750, 1759, 1759 for Handel, uh, it is extraordinary. It's not because they die so much, but what they represented just comes to a very abrupt end. Even Bach's own sons... There's no time to play an example, but uh, C.P.E. Bach or Johann Bach, their music, you think, well, that sounds like Haydn, um, is quite different. Now the tune, the melody, is becoming more prominent at the expense of other parts. So instead of being a violist in a Brandenburg concerto with all this kind of melodic, motivic interest that's being handed off to you by the first violin, say, now you find yourself going and that becomes intensified in the romantic repertoire you know the famous double bass player who says I don't know what have you been playing I don't know it goes oh you mean yeah so that's the one Whereas if you've just gone through a, a Mozart-Bach uh, violin concerto accompanying a soloist or, or conducting a cantata or singing in it, you have uh, lines of in requiring constant and equally spread, any Marxist will be pleased to notice, um, equally allotted busyness and responsibility musically. Mm -hmm. uh, your notes are no less important than the person, even in a Brangberg concerto or a violin concerto, than the soloist or the, um, the uh, concertati segment of the ensemble. By the time um, we reach, we're getting now to the end of the, the 18th century, we reach Mozart at his, in his last year. You can see how music has, uh, uh, I know you know these pieces, but you can see how music has moved on in an extraordinary way. And I know there's some question about the... This is, sorry, this is very annoying. Um, would you just let me do something here a second to stop this? Um, there's some question about the, the authorship of much of the Mozart Requiem, but um, it's still really Mozart, Mozartish, if not to, you know, significantly Mozart. So... Let's try that. All right, we'll try again. I do apologize. I hate technical glitches, but there they are. There we go. So, the opening movement of the Mozart Requiem, the arrival of the clarinet, or in fact, basset horns, but close neighbor totally different musical language a static bass line at this point building of tension through repetition cascading still though some of that contrapuntal handing off in the vocal lines 
crescendos and diminuendos, now very important, all these expressive devices. I don't mean to imply there wasn't such an instinct in Baroque music, it's just it had to be handled differently. On the harpsichord and the organ, you had to move from keyboard one to keyboard two to get a contrast, like in the Italian um, uh, concerto. Um, on the organ, you sometimes had three different manuals or keyboards upon which you would set predetermined registrations, and you've got what they call terraced dynamics, loud, soft, not even MF. This gradation characteristic comes in much later, actually with some of Bach's sons, C.P.E. Bach particularly. Yet again, we still see that the styles are still somewhat close, despite this snap with the death of Bach and Handel. These are simple little divertimenti which might, it suggested, even have been played by guys sitting in a barber shop. This has been done very professionally. Very simple, but still that same kind of expressive language. There's no basso continuo going on. Um, that's gone. Meanwhile, what I wonder was happening in the churches in the face of all this. Now, this is a very difficult area to cover because so many different things were happening. There was uh, um, both the Calvinistic and the, uh, the Calvinist and the Lutheran approach to music, both very different. And it's interesting that Anglicanism seems in Britain, at any rate England, to have been impacted more by the Calvinist view than the Lutheran. So if you lived in... Uh, these are huge generalizations. There just isn't time to go into detail. But typically, Luther looked for a music for the congregation, which he had a huge hand in developing and creating and composing for. That introduced the foundation stone of the chorale or the Lutheran hymn from which we our hymns are derived so Lutheran hymns um, a Moravian uh, exiles going across the Atlantic on a ship in which Charles Wesley was tra John Wesley was traveling and deeply impacted Wesley was by their singing at the height of a storm in the Atlantic and what they were singing were these chorales, presumably. Um, he then went on, uh, but most, but chiefly through his um, brother Charles, to create the huge deposit of Methodist hymnody, which then attracted the ears and eyes of the um, Episcopal establishments. And through a number of convolutions, uh, we end up with hymns ancient and modern in the middle of the Victorian era and it goes on from there <laughs> that's very sweeping because there are other people involved but yeah the chorale but room left within the church life for talented music making people who had taken time to 
rehearse, people who'd taken time to work their way around some of that music we heard earlier of Bach's or Yes, let's stick to Bach. And they could do things like happens here. That is, the choir does something significant in the liturgy, but it's not for us to participate in, uh, not without perhaps disastrous consequences. So, um, but we have our hymns, so we can do that. The, the Calvinist approach, uh, I hesitate to go into this with Dr. Packer sitting here, but I think it's fair to say that it was much more austere <clears throat> and in... Uh, some manifestations, including apparently a church in Prince Edward Island, there must be others, Americans have told me of churches they knew, know there, where it's no instruments, single line music, pitchfork, um, and away you go with metrical psalms, which apparently by law was what the Anglicans should have been singing. That all fell to pieces and was replaced, I think, or eradicated with the <coughs> Tractarian movement. So, um, this is how it might have sounded in your local parish church. Maddie Pryor. Um, it's again, all these recordings are, are <laughs> idealistic. It would have been a lot cruder than that, but uh, she's trying to recreate the tradition of the gallery instrumentalists or the gallery music. Non robed, non formal, back of the church, where often the organ would be if it survived. It wasn't doing very well until the 19th century. Um, and it might be just people getting together to play like this um, it was often according to some reports terrible I can well imagine <laughs> but there is a life to this way she's doing it there's, there's an authenticity there but of course now what we're beginning to see is a divergence aren't we we've got the art music developing and the need for professionalism and a, a public that is left somewhat behind in those matters um, and of course many other upheavals especially post-industrial revolution the city's burgeoning country culture going down the sink um, a lot of cohesion in the communities broken um, but this all plays in to what we're looking at um, with an eye on this one of the things that's happening of course I'm, yes I'm going to skimp no I, I don't want to skip well don't then <laughs> just to show how this gulf is widening um Now at the end of the 19th century, Verdi's Requiem. Look at this little um, gesture to Bach, or Baroque, sorry, Baroque. So it's fugal. However, it is only a gesture. 
close. You can hear the orchestra's getting restless. Ah. Now, for the people singing, the Choral Society is a phenomenon of the 19th century. There's a fascinating book on it in English terms, um, The History of Popular Music. Um, but in the industrial cities, because this is Verdi, not, we're not in England, nevertheless there are equivalents, Mendelssohn, Leiser, the Choral Society becomes a massive influence. Sometimes they're tied to factories or to industrial cities, the famous one being Huddersfield Choral Society to this day. Brass bands attached to uh, uh, actual brand names of vehicles, like the Foden Works uh, brass band. They used to make trucks. And these were top-rate ensembles. Um, and yet, that is where, in a wonderful way, people who couldn't have the sophisticated training of um, a composer or an instrumentalist heading for the symphonic realm. They could enjoy this music that was being, to some extent, written with them in mind. So that um, Mendelssohn can write Elijah um, with de a de very demanding orchestral part and very demanding solo work, but now the choir drawn from people in all walks of life can enjoy singing the chorus parts for which the lines have been written sympathetically often demanding but sympathetically doable um, meanwhile in evangelical circles this was going we were still at the end of the 19th century notice the brass band fact that I can um, cut this off a little is because we know what's coming. It's very predictable, which I think is significant. Um, so I'm not knocking it. This was music drawn in many ways from popular idioms by Sankey for the Moody and Sankey revival meetings, and there are many imitators. But the Thousand and thousand Sacred Songs and Solos book, which I didn't bring along, went through countless printings, mostly in Britain. Um, but of course, it had come from America, it had come from the, the revival tradition of, of uh, Midwest and South America, Southern America. Um, and what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so the music hall bounced to many of their tunes. The classic, I've, I think I've done this before, is uh, When Jesus Came Into My Heart. It occurred to me, when Jesus came into my heart. That's good. But if you speed it up, you have... <laughs> and, uh, um, And with Romanticism, in its more careless manifestations, the rise of sentimentality. Oh, sentimental expression. This particularly shows up in the mass printing of music for the 
rising, uh, I have to be class conscious here, it's alright because I was in it, um, <laughs> working class and emerging lower middle classes. Hat of a piano, Paul Johnston, the historian, makes this point. The piano building became a burgeoning industry in the uh, between 1815 and 18... I've, 18 no, what is it, the age of the modern. I've, 1810, is it, to 1820? Something like that. He says all these things happened in that short window and everybody had a piano or a harmonium. Um, you must have seen harmoniums. They were very widespread in Canada and manufactured in, in Ontario and ex exported. My school had one from Ontario. Um, and it, it said it was mouse-proof, which I thought was very reassuring. <laughs> So you have to have that. And of course, business being business, also very significant. Uh, the industry started to emerge for providing and um, meeting and exploiting the new trend in popular taste. And so in its extreme form, early 20th century, the sinking of the Titanic yielded scads of sentimental solos and uh, and reflections on this tragedy and there would be lurid pictures at the front and a lot of this kind of thing um, meanwhile um, things in my side of the fence in which I was trained were getting a bit um, they're okay but everything seemed bogged down in Brahmsian or possibly Wagnerian but more likely certainly for our purposes Brahmsian kind of Tonality, texture, speed. Brahms' music is very ponderous in many ways. Um, and it resulted in, no question about it, I won't play examples, it takes too much time, uh, a very solemn, a very slow approach to church music. And you can hear that, I heard it a lot on the BBC, with their weekly broadcast of Evensong from a cathedral was often beautifully and professionally done, but it would start off with the inspiriting and lively uplifting Lord, open thou and a with an upper class accent to sing and our shall take forth thy praise and it went on like this um, Percy Scholes, who was a Christian and a, a musicologist and, and the editor of the Oxford Companion to Music, says, uh, present day difficulty, says he writing in 1947, special difficulty of the composer, so in mid-century, mid-20th century, church music of the present day may be referred to. The very boldly experimental mood of the age has brought into existence new idioms that are yet not accepted by the public in general, and the composer who finds in one of these his natural means of expression is barred from the composition of church music since no choir master would for a moment think of exposing a congregation to the shock of a plunge into the entirely unfamiliar and he refers to the fact that it's trapped in uh, music that might have been written in the days of Mendelssohn or at any rate of Brahms very interesting poor guy didn't know what was lying around the corner just in the 60s Michael Tippett's Magnificat. 
Contemporary? <laughs> so was Sankey. <laughs> All the people I played have been contemporary. So, how about that? I'm, I, I've often thought I'd love to put presented that when Harry was here and see what he said. <laughs> Mr. Norman. <clears throat> um, meanwhile, around the time that was written, a great... The, the, the gap now had split, and I am of a sufficiently ancient age to remember the rupture culturally that occurred when, certainly in England... Elvis Presley and uh, who's a bloke with the comments? Bill, Bill Haley and the Comets arrived um, in Britain and with their movies like Jailhouse Rock and so on, mm. behaviour, language, attitude, everything shifted with the, um, if you will, the traditional, as people would refer to it in church terms, getting more and more defensive, it had already been defensive, now it's even more so, and the other side of the spectrum becoming more radical. I think nothing illustrates this better than a, a humorous uh, little light-hearted moment with Peter Sellers. It's a take-off on an English rock musician called Tommy Steele, who really rocked things in Britain. People go, oh dear, whatever's happened. <laughs> um, so Peter Sellers does a wonderful BBC mock interview. Okay, it's a chill chat. Well, I don't know. Um, well, um, I reckon it, uh, I'm going to stick around doing what I am for a while and uh, rocking and rolling, you know, and singing all that sort of stuff. And then uh, I'd like to uh, leave that part of the uh, show business altogether and I like to branch out in the uh, strike side, you know. So what, what, do you, what do you intend to do? Well, we've been... Uh, the the uh, accent of the with, uh, announcer... ...that the uh, public don't know about. The class know, distinction is incredible. in the archives for hundreds of years. We came across one the other day. Um, it was uh, the trumpet voluntary. <laughs> you mean the trumpet voluntary by Purcell? Yeah, um, well, yeah, I think that's a fellow. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. And, and what do you intend to do with uh, the trumpet voluntary? Well, well, first of all, we're going to uh, do a new arrangement of it completely, get a nice sort of beat going behind it, and, uh, well, you know, something for the kids to like to, uh, you know, do a bit of joy to. I mean, you know, when you've got a lot of fellow like me covering nothing, and uh, suddenly sh rocketing it, rock it aside them. I mean, you know, you've got to sort of keep your feet on the ground or people go around saying you're a bit of a big eddy. Yes. yes. <laughs> and if you think that culturally that's an exaggeration, here's a BBC announcer from those days. The first song says Shakespeare's eighth sonnet. Music to hear, why hearst thou music sadly? Sweets with sweet war not, joy delights in joy. <laughs> in the setting of Ariel's song from Tempest, Fall Fathom Five, Thy Father Lies. Stravinsky's wide stepping opening notes set up a cold tinted tabulation which is maintained right through to the death knell with which the song ends. You can see that, that would leave perhaps about 98% of the listening population completely <laughs> isolated. <laughs> Uh, I, and and I, I mourn the loss. I mean, good grief, look at CBC. Um, but now the extremities are huge, and there's this abyss. Um, 
Now, it, still, it's possible, you know, to find people singing. Here's a thousand Liverpudlians singing at a... Quite recently. But everyone will turn out for him sing, and there's a little bit of nostalgia, and I hope a lot more than that, um, the parts of the people. So thank the Lord that it's not quite lost yet. cathedrals, particularly the cathedrals um, there was this still this kind of music can be heard to this day we, I think Terry does this, it's a gorgeous piece by C.V. Stanford Beate Quorum, Blessed are those who walk uh, in the fear of the Lord but it's pure Brahms <laughs> Stanford studied in Germany and um, but was one of the rescuers of worship music in the more trained, formal branch in Britain and helped to establish the Royal College of Music. I've got to uh, keep moving if we're going to finish in time for questions. And of course, you require trained people to sing that. Though before we say, ah, yes, and fall for what the industry would like, this kind of, oh, snooty kind of, that's a piece that the students at Trinity Western are learning. Students from E-free backgrounds, Mennonite backgrounds, have never encountered this kind of music before, and they are um, lapping it up. Let's have a little quiz. Spot the Christian uh, song. I'm going to really skip them quickly. Well, obviously that's Christian. Okay. You know the song? I know you're listening for the words. That's cheating. It's the music. I'm... Okay, and then this. And this. You did say that. Okay, and then. Um. So, what do we got here? Uh, excuse me a moment. Uh, oh yes. Uh, right. Um. So, would, do you know which? I expect you know the pieces because you all listen to pop music. 
So the last one was, what was that? Who thinks it's Christian? Oh, okay, you're right. Um, it's Mad- was it Britney Spears or something like that? No, it's Madonna. <laughs> the previous one was Christian. Though I, unfortunately, I, I don't have the details of the singers because I um, took it from a medley. <clears throat> this, that's, uh, any offers? Country, isn't it? Hmm? I, I, it sounded like a country singer. I know. Yeah, it's Rihanna, and she's not singing about our Lord. Um, <clears throat> and then this one at the beginning was, um, but the thing is, there's a, a closeness, isn't there, at a certain level. They'll say, "Oh no, it's all the difference in the world," but it's a very, very tightly contained world. Very. Um, um, and the first one was, of course, Christian. Um, you can tell, actually, by the quality of the voice sometimes. Here's a gentleman who's a rapper. Um, Toby Mac. He's a rap singer. He sings overtly about being a good husband and a good father as a Christian. He uh, does express his faith very specifically. I'm sorry there isn't more time to illustrate it. Um, But with this stuff that's happening across this abyss, you've got this frightening aspect. And that cannot be discounted and as just a bit of fun and growing up. I think the damage could be huge. But anyway, um, I'm just trying to show that's contemporary. And as we can see and know very well, the church has bought into that. For You may feel that's good, necessary. Um, we can't have <clears throat> music locked into C.B. Stanford in, in, imitating Brahms. But what contemporary, this careless use of the term contemporary, which has now become in itself commodified, <clears throat> it's a weapon almost, is that it can blot out that which is really interesting and really good and really rich in its offering for the church. And I just want to close by playing a piece which you would never have thought the students at Trinity Western, I accompany them, so it's fascinating, this whole experience is uh, watching their reaction to things. This is brand new for them, and the piece is brand new, and it depicts the angels beaming down on the infant Jesus. It's very moving. It's called... Looks a arumque, light and gold. You can get this is a high school choir from America, Wichita. It can be done.
downward bending, looking down on the manger. Let me just read something from a Benedict, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, when he wrote this. Then we can talk. The question of how far enculturation can go soon became a very practical one for early... Whoa, I'm putting the wrong thing. I'm so sorry. After the Cultural Revolution of recent decades, we are faced with a challenge no less great than that of the three moments of crisis that we have encountered in our historical sketch. The Gnostic temptation, the crisis at the end of the Middle Ages, and the beginning of modernity. And the crisis at the beginning of the 20th century, which formed the prelude to the still more radical question of the present day. Um, This is contemporary, but who's contemporary? Who's by choice contemporary? It's odd, isn't it? Satire can often sum it up. I feel the Sellers interview, which is very old, it's late 50s, um, mid 50s, sums up the dilemma. It isn't just preference of music. Contemporary in one sense, in its destructive sense, means <laughs> the way you carry yourself, the way you talk, the way you dress, everything starts to go down. And then the behavior and the language and a lot of other things follow. And faith, as expressed in the church, looks increasingly a, an object of mockery or, or um, irrelevance. <clears throat> it's not fun. You're not going to have girls screaming at the gates when David Short arrives in his car. (laughs) Which is yet another aspect, the whole issue of fame. Celebrity, how does that fit into our Lord's teaching and will for us? So there we are. There's a ridiculously fast and very um, skimmy look at some moments of being contemporary Um, response to you know write a new song now (laughs) Uh, now well we'll talk about it there we are so questions Yes. The origins of the pipe organ, because there's the accordia, and the, how did they end up blowing wind into the organs to what they are today? From they're very, I see in India they have accordions. Where did the pipe organ originate from? Well, I think it originated with the Chinese sheng, which was a bowl with just a few pipes sticking out of it, and you blew into that. The Romans apparently had some kind of hydraulic organ. It's difficult to see how that would have worked, but I suppose there is a carving of it, a pressed water pressure which would push air through a pipe I can't imagine it would be very good for the bark fugue but uh, <laughs> that, it starts there and then grows, in, it's a his, fascinating history, mm-hmm. subject of another <clears throat> another time um, 
Yes. Oh, sorry to interrupt the others. I think this is a big question. Um, you know, let's face it, types of music have always maybe come out of worldly music, and then you have the oh, yes. sort of counterpart. As we've shown, yeah. Yeah. The big question today is, uh, do you stay main line with more which is sacred and more to the holy uh, aspect of God? Or do you realize you got young people who have been cultured with uh, contemporary music, and would you have the number of young people, especially here at night, if you didn't have that type of <coughs> Christian contemporary music? What do you do with worldly people if you're going to invite them into the sound of the gospel in the place? If uh, they've been used to a certain type of music and they hate mainline music, you know, from a past era. So, you know, the Bible does say, um, love not the world. It says, you know, friend of the world is the enemy of God's, but... Uh, you know, with these two variations in thought, you yourself being in the musical yes. field, or what do you think of? Well, oh, I battled with that long and hard, especially with our evening service when I was here. Just, I mean, philosophically I did. <clears throat> I joined in, um, but um, I feel that last piece I played, and watching these kids, by the way, these are not music students necessarily who are learning this stuff and taking to it and going, Wow! Um, now, that's ridiculous. We can't have that every night at St. John's. And I'm not, and I actually want to lift myself out of the St. John's. I'm not being personal about this. But a typical, I live under a family that goes to a distinguished church here, and their children are in this mode right now as young teenagers. I, I, I don't quite know what, how you get around this, but I do think the knee-jerk reaction, the predictable response of young people shouldn't be capitulated in, and shouldn't be in some loving kind of way. It's a huge undertaking. It's educational. But I do think we can start in the church by <clears throat> nudging in options, alternatives. I think Celtic music is a very good start. Um, I know of churches where that is the case. Everything is fret-based. Um, incidentally, that's being driven by the fact that churches like Fireside are portable. They have to get out of there at the end of their service. They can't even have a piano. <laughs> um, they have to pack their instruments and get out. Get rid of the PA. Stop imitating vocally and compositionally the, the pop industry. And, and I think one key is to try and point out to kids that they are, they are marketed and targeted in a, in, in a um, a severe way. This is bottom line, multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and William Bach, writing in Worship for the Glory of God, a recently released book, he's in Wheaton, says one of the major tasks of the evangelical church in its worship is to rescue it from the praise and worship industry. And I think if there's authenticity, and above all, if there is truth, the power of the word, evident, it will take longer perhaps to, uh, for the word to get around, you will still get your young. I'm convinced of that. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, the world's the leading people in the world are probably practicing Satanists who are at the top of the music industry if you study on... There's, oh, there certainly are some, yes. Yeah, I mean... Uh, that. Um, what do you do on the other hand? you got a group like down south, I am they, and the lead singer. It's a Christian group. Mm. And uh, the lead singer was saved because he, there was so suicidal tendencies. He came to a knowledge of the Lord yeah. through his wife who instructed him, who's in the group and that. And, you yeah. know, they're going on. They're, they're, yes. There's been a change in their lives and yet they sing contemporary music so what do you say with them? Well I don't think it's contemporary that, <laughs> well, I, I, it's old hat music which is commodified it's yeah. really commercialized 
Christian music, a commercialised music, sorry, uh, which is being adapted for Christian use. Um, and that's funny, I was reading a book about that very kind of story um, out in the Trinity Western Library, a whole slew of stories of that kind of thing. And a lot of people who've come out of the band, uh, right out of the band idiom, because they suddenly realised what was going on. And what goes on seems to be part of the culture, that culture. I mean, if you look at Keith Richards' book, or you dip into that uh, Mick Jagger's book, their references to young girls is sickening. It will just enough to say that's how we like them. We'll do. Um, and the stories around even the sweet bands, like I can't remember, was the Osman. He, in his book, he writes of how these. <coughs> underage girls, mostly girls, who, who um, were groupies, um, in his words, I'm sorry to mention these things on the Sabbath, but, you know, the band got the first pick and then he got the second. I think our task is not to say, oh, you know, we really want to understand your culture. It was a come out of that culture. Yeah. And uh, but how we do that has to be imaginative and loving and um, imaginative. This is a fantastic way, because the director I'm referring to, Joel, is young. Here's a guy who is almost our age. Wow. And he's giving us, the, he thinks this stuff's cool. We just need more people like that. And I think the church's job is to start encouraging, in a very practical way, that kind of authenticity in music. It doesn't have to be that elaborate. And I think Celtic is a good start. So actually, I've got a, a question which is partly answered, but just a comment what you're saying about bands. So many years ago, I was on flight from England to Finland, and I was sitting with a band from England who was going over to play in the sort of mid, midsummer festival. And so the, guy, the, the person next to me was saying, you know, we play our bit, and then at the end of the concert, the girls come round to the stage entrance. Yes. And, um, uh, well, you know, we have fun. So that's my little story, which I wasn't planning to mention or to use the video. Yes. My question is... I'm not implying, by the way, that morality rests solely in classical music. No, no, sure, no, it doesn't. <laughs> not quite so many girls come around. Exactly, so they're not... They're at the end of the Tchaikovsky program, they're not there outside of the Orpheum. No, I know. But the question I had was... Um, I mean, which has already partly been answered. You, you might have... Um, uh, clergymen or you know, preachers who say our job is to preach the gospel to people where they are mm. It's not our job is not to improve what may be a bad culture but to take Christianity to people in the culture that they're at Yes. now I think you, <clears throat> I mean that seems a fairly strong argument in a way mm. how would you respond to that argument? well it's modelled on our Lord's um, example but we must remember that Jesus when he met people at where they were didn't leave them there very long uh, there was an immediate raising, lifting out of saving um, action and we somehow have to show that one of the characteristics for me uh, and this is uh, Roger Scruton's view the um, St Andrews philosopher, statistician and so on um, who says the characteristic of pop music of content, what we tend to call contemporary, is that it's a predictable, utterly predictable musical form. Yes, there are little variations, and there's some imaginative stuff on the fringes, but it's a predictable form on which to hang the personality of the performer. And I think that, for me, is a brilliant revelation. But all this stuff has come about to fill a vacuum left, I'm sorry to say, by the evangelical tradition. 
which, um, after the death of Handel in, in England, <clears throat> a few composers tried to imitate him, but music slid desperately. There are no composers really to mention Mendelssohn, of course, but he wasn't really in England, um, until the Stanford Revival. And um, uh, there was interest in certain areas, but there was, there was this vacuum. And certainly there was a vacuum in the church. So when I became a Christian in London, we're still singing Sankey choruses from the 1870s. There was, you weren't allowed in like children's special service mission, you weren't allowed to go beyond that. One guy tried, a Christian composer, said, I've got some new choruses for you, submitted them to um, Scripture Union, Golden Bells, and they said, no, thank you. Um, so there's this stifling kind of, you know, uh, we've seen, uh, give me that one, give me that old, old story indeed. Don't disturb it. <laughs> and music can uh, contribute to that. So we've invited this dilemma, but it is a dilemma, and I think it needs a very, a very, inf- well, inf- a lively response. Um, at least just think of it in terms of um, <coughs> NDP terms, of taking on big industry. Yeah? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, um. <coughs> Let's think of the verse, the sons of this age are wiser than the generation than the children of light. Uh, one time I met in media, I attended a, quote, drunk concert at the School of Music, humorous concert. And one thing I remember is a mock history of uh, music and dance. Starts off with a supposed ancestors, savage drumming and dancing, and, you know, different stages. You know, finally, disco was just fading away, and and then they dared to peer into the future, back to the cavemen. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, yeah, some people have argued that, especially with the slap beat. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah, there is. There's no doubt. You look at the videos on YouTube, and the crowd behavior is fascinating. I want to pick up on Moody and Sankey. Yes. You and I had that discussion once before. Yes. <laughs> I kind of know what to think about it. And, and you have to be careful about the bad theology that is reflected in some of their hymns. But I grew up in a church that did continue to use that kind of yes. music, not exclusively. But um, there were people who understood the message oh, through yes. the music and yes. were brought to Christ yes. that way. Absolutely. And so I'd like you to comment on, does the church's music still do that? Mm-hmm. Yes. I... I <coughs> a good question and, and in that clip I played it's actually a video and you can see um, the we're not dealing here with a superficial performance it's people who've gathered much like the ones in Liverpool Cathedral to sing something I think with a good deal more intention um, and I, I do know having been immersed in it to some extent um, the value of that because it but it has characteristics which, again, if, <coughs> if they are hijacked, if that's the right word, um, blot, tend to blot out anything more imaginative and creative. Where other... I mean, for me, personally, that um, Whitaker piece is... I played it three times last night. <laughs> I couldn't get over it. And, uh, but, of course, it does tie into some extent as to how we think, how we're wired. Some people think in pictures, other people... Um, might find that invalid whereas the chorus the Sankey chorus is very specific it's syllabically set there's no melisma 
It isn't like four and two pluses four and four. It's everything is when Jesus came into my heart. Um, and that's good for memorizing. And I, I think the important thing with the Sankey tradition is to um, keep a slightly critical eye out for the poetry, as you say, the theology, and some of the musical crassness. I'm sorry, it is. It's, it's not skilled often. Some of it is, but not all of it. Um, and see its value, especially in helping to memorize scripture and so on, uh, but not let it block out other mm -hmm. offerings for people who think or uh, wired differently. That's what I feel about it. And the other thing I noticed in my early evangelical days was there is a danger, there always is a danger, of um, I won't say the church we went to when we first came here, but it just it was rote. It was just kind of down to I know this hymn and they can look around singing it. I was just singing it. Um, um, over time, this can happen in any, any idiom, over familiarity and repetition can dull the perceptions and the response even. Um, but of course it was cast in a very Victorian musical language. And that inevitably, that's not the richest musical period of history, and inevitably it's, it's a musical impoverishment is going to have some consequences, I think. I must, there's a hand that's been up for a long time, Phil. Um, if it's not oversimplifying, could you say that the ideal objective of Christian music <coughs> is to promote a mindful and emotional and meditative understanding of the word of God and that if so uh, it would follow that any music in which the wording is obscure, indecipherable vague, indistinct uh, non-recognizable is inherently defective. Would you agree? No, no I wouldn't. Uh, probably because uh, <laughs> with notes in the bulletin and aids of that kind you can, uh, we're talking now about the overall picture of music in worship, not just hymns. Um, it is possible for people, I think Catholics before, but Vatican too, you jolly well what was being sung, there's the Curia, the Sanctus, the Annus Day, and the Benedictus. It didn't require a kind of um, detailed understanding application throughout. There was, there's a, there is, I think, in us another level, which is, um, which carries us in different ways. So, I think uh, obscurity for the sake of it, um, of course, is a problem. But <clears throat> it seems to me when Bach sets an Alleluia or a, um, um, a Sanctus, that it's, or whatever for that matter, you, you, know, you sort of know what's happening. Um, so, uh, and I feel if we just go for the kind of utilitarian. <clears throat> We lose something in life gen in general. We get utilitarian architecture, like the BC high schools that were built in the 50s, you know, cinder block and, and glass you can't look out of, versus the attempt to do things to the buildings today, which have no utilitarian justification at all, but actually, actually create really beauty. And I think beauty is is a very important, in this lecture, totally neglected aspect of this debate. Beauty has to be part of the Christian uh, understanding and sens sensitizing. Otherwise, 
you can end up with a very grim kind of Christianity, I think. Now we've got a forest of hands, and I think Harvey's was the first. And, oh, I'm sorry, actually it wasn't. Can I just touch oh, sure, your hand? Sure, sure. Yes. Yeah, I'd just like to pick up a little bit on your, your sense that it's uh, predictable, this modern music, that uh, yes. people, kids that are coming to the evening services, etc. Could I just clarify that? I bet it's harmonically, one, two, four, five, yes, one, exactly. four, five, and five, five, four, five, From my knowledge of the history of music, you could say that about from medieval to the Renaissance to the book. There was certain predictability oh, until yes. it started to decay and go into the next phase yes. when, when there was innovation happening. So... So to me, um, looking at uh, religiosity uh, and people's relation to their own worship and their own choice of what kind of church they go to, it is generally, and I want to bring the young people in particular, it is based not so much on the rational feeling that of elevated uh, music. It's feeling. It's feeling that engenders religiosity. It doesn't matter whether you're an old person like me or a young person. And so I can't see how we can, as older people, try and impose that on a young culture that needs to be able to relate from a feeling point of view uh, to that music. And I, I don't think that we can, we, can get, we can make a judgment on that so much. And when you look at the evangelical churches, I'm from Tawasin, and the South Delta Baptist Church, it's, it goes through families, and the families have young people to teenagers, yes. and there's thousands of them that go to all these evangelical churches, and they're up there unabashedly with the rock and roll and the hip-hop and all the sub-genres that all the... And the parents largely go for that, because, mm. and the pastors, because that's how churches grow, how Christianity grows. I, I'm not an evangelical, but... I don't think we can discount it because it is all about feeling. Yeah, that's the trouble, I think. Um, yeah, in a sense that we have been on, we have been concentrating on feeling for half a century. Um, you see, I don't. The whole idea that we people are going to turn away from the words of life because there is, let's just say, a well done hymn. Pro, hymn-based program. See, there's another illustration. I, I find that very difficult. There's another illustration I've got, which is Paul Jones at Tenth Presbyterian in Philadelphia, um, and his book is prefaced by a visiting cleric who's been there for a year. And he said, "I can't." As somebody had told me, a young person had told me, I couldn't believe that here's a church jammed with young people, and their worship is hymn-based. But it's done well. See, this is another debate. It's the level of performance and whether hymns are done with life. And uh, yes, of course, I think you know, some hymns are, are really embarrassing. Wilting <laughs> flowers all over the place and all that kind of thing. But then take a Wesley hymn. Maybe sometimes you need a little bit of sensible editing. You can't see nine verses today. People will tolerate it. But um, you can cut back a little and very, you know, careful editing, those hymns are so powerful, and there are modern poets and modern hymn writers who are fantastic, so there's a lot in America, a lot, and I think some, again, some of the uh, um, sacred harp, old folk hymn melodies, um, we are meant to gather, it's imaginative, we get away from the organ, have a bit um, uh, fret music. I think we have to come up with a unique music 
who worship. But we're borrowing from the contemporary over here. And we have relied perhaps too much on the contemporary over here. Getting um, things written in the mold of a post-Bramsian idiom, which people... It's not enough imagination. Um, and my conviction is that if the music is imaginative, it will draw people. Yeah, you might have some, you might have a change in your clientele, but that's another debate. I'm sorry, I must get back. Um, um, footnote to that good previous question. Does Evan, I don't find evangelical music, I know, whatever that is. It, it's feeling, but it doesn't carry mystery to no, my mind. You, you mentioned Harry a few times during your talk. I, I'm going to close this, by the way. He used, I remember sitting beside Harry in a St. John's service engaged, and he would say to me after the service, where's the mystery? Mm. That was his comment about us. Well, clarity, yes. Clarity of the gospel, yes. But the gospel itself opens out into something beyond mere uh, 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 clear and distinct ideas yes. from the heart. But it's, it's, there's something else there that can be missing. Yes. Anyway, could you comment before I close this okay. thing? I think the aspect of mystery uh, it has not sat well, in my experience, in the evangelical culture. Um, not exclusively. They're all sweeping statements. I know they are, but time makes it so. Um, something we have to guard against and, and I'm sure it's not limited to the evangelical wing of the church but um, we are driven by that post-industrial revolution numbers equal success our church is successful because we have numbers and that kind of Finney style 19th century evangelicalism which insisted that we get people in at all costs and if we have to you know, move people by devices and means we do it Whereas, of course, the opposite of that would be, no, God, the Holy Spirit, determines, moves people's hearts and bring, convicts them and brings them in, gets them searching. Um, and then, like running a very good restaurant, a healthy restaurant, we provide the food, and if we do it well, people will go, ooh, that looks interesting, um, and they'll be nourished. At the moment, I feel sometimes we have Mac worship. <laughs> I've often encouraged Ed I wish he'd uh, be more you know speak his mind more bluntly <laughs> too subtle and you know underneath our radar but I was uh, in my youth I went to the first uh, Beatles concert in so I don't know why I still have uh, bruises on one of my shoulders from some of those young women that Ed was talking about who were behind me going yes yes and I knew that they were onto something at that moment <laughs> sorry I just oh, thought I knew <laughs> I don't know <laughs> but anyway well, this is a, a, just a wonderful talk today from, uh, from our good friend Edward and uh, I think we should uh, express our appreciation Thank you.